you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. The Christian bookstore industry is dying off rapidly. Uh, but when I was younger, they were on every corner. Every, every kind of big city had a Coke Sperry and a Lifeway at minimum. You might have something like our Benedictus for the Catholics, and you might have a few independent ones that have like a bakery inside. But they all have a similar concept. Come in and you can pick from any of the 4,362 Bibles available. You can pick up your communion supplies, and you can buy tchotchkes that nobody needs. You can get coffee cups and uh, ornate tapestries. You can get uh, pictures and you can get t-shirts. You can get anything with that favorite verse of yours uh, in there, especially the big ones, right? So you would go in and you would find Proverbs 31 women stuff. Let's, let's find a woman who's like this. And you would find uh, the Jeremiah text. You know, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you. You'd find... Uh, you know, uh, Jesus is saying, let the little ones come to me. And sure as there is sun in the sky, you would find something with Micah 6, 8 on it. What does the Lord require of you but to love justice, or to do justice, love, it's translated differently every time, something, love tenderly, love compassionately, love mercifully, something. Uh, and what's the third one? Walk humbly with the Lord, okay? We're going to get to why that's a hard one to remember. But they don't put a little section under each one that says, here's the context. Here's the bigger picture of this verse. We don't want Jeremiah-level plans from God for our lives because we would not enjoy Jeremiah's life. Uh, we, we take the context of the Proverbs 31 woman, and we have made this thing distorted to be all kinds of things that God uh, does not mean. And Micah 6, 8 uh, has sat out there as just this, this sweet little call to just to just love and, and do good. And it's absolutely a call to that, but it's, it needs to be situated more broadly within its context, okay? Israel has a tripartite government, very different than uh, most other uh, kind of civilizations. They have a, uh, a king or a judge. We read these texts in the book of Judges and in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. They have a priest whose work we primarily read about in Leviticus, and they have a prophet who we get through uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And these three together really are the rulers of Israel. They each have a distinct job, and they each hold each other in balance. Uh, a prophet without a priest is uh, one who's only bringing a word without the people being able to respond back to God. A priest without a king is uh, probably getting too much power. And we see throughout the story of Israel how each of these can kind of get a little sideways. The prophets uh, tell us the same stories that we read about in the books of the kings, but they tell it from a much different picture. The books of the kings, especially once you get past Solomon, are pretty boring. This king was terrible, this king was terrible, this king was terrible, this king was terrible. Oh, there was one that was kind of good, but he wasn't in the north, he was in the south. Uh, this king was terrible, this king was terrible, the end. Um, and then you flip to the prophets, and uh, they go into vivid detail about how wicked those kings were. 
and what that meant for Israel. The prophets uh, don't uh, dive in and pick out one person's sin. They pick out the sin of Israel. And every prophet has two sins and two sins only. That's not true. You can find a few little sins here there, but <laughs> primarily two sins and two sins only. Does anybody know what the things they're critiquing are of Israel? If you were in Sunday school this morning, you knew. What are the two things? I think I heard idolatry. Okay. And what was the other thing? A little louder. There you go, not loving your neighbor. So they critique people for worshiping other gods and trampling upon each other. This is it. This is the words of the prophets. If you just leave Marduk and Baal and Asherah and Anuk behind and solely turn your worship to Yahweh, uh, you'd be better people. And you would stop trampling on each other. You would stop weighting the scales in the marketplace. You would stop taking the coat in on interest. You would stop doing these things. You would stop laying out on your chaise lounge while these other people are starving to death. You would do this. Love God and love others. And it gets particularized in lots of different ways. And each prophet has their own uh, little bit of tone. We're in Micah today. Micah is uh, fascinating to me. Micah stands uh, kind of in a, a... critical moment in Israel's history. Uh, Not long before Micah, Israel had broken into two. After the death of David and Solomon, it it is fractured, and we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel in the north never has a good king and makes mistake after mistake after mistake. And eventually, Israel in the north faces uh, a new empire bearing down on them. For most of Israel's story, Egypt had been the empire of fear. We need to run away from Egypt. We need to get away from Egypt. Egypt might come after us. They might make treaties with these other countries, and they might attack us. But about time uh, of this part of Israel's story, Assyria becomes the dominant force of that. Can we get that picture, Jake? Assyria. You can see how big it is in in the bluish color compared to Egypt. Assyria is beginning to become, uh, in many ways, the first empire. It is uh, taking over the region, and it is militarily pretty powerful. This is the country that God tries to send Jonah to, and Jonah flees. He's like, nope, not going to those wicked people. I'd rather die in this boat than go to them. Assyria bears down upon them, and they're just grabbing up nation after nation after nation, and finally they bear down on the northern kingdom of Israel and take them over. Well, once you take a, a northern neighbor over, what's the next step? The southern neighbor, right? So this is the face of Judah, our southern kingdom now, in the, in the pink. This is all that is left of what was the nation of Israel after Assyria comes in and takes over the north, brings them into exile, and banishes them. We have Judah left, which holds basically Jerusalem and a few other towns you might have heard of. Surely they cannot stand. Micah is preaching in this time. The north has just fallen. Things are devastating, and he's going, turn to Yahweh and care for each other, and we won't be like Israel. We won't. And, uh, you know, remember back in Kings where we occasionally had that, like, one good king pop up? We have a couple right at this time who pop up and are pretty good. Hezekiah comes on the scene, and he is going to reform Israel and get it back put together, Judah, not Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah, put it back together, get them following Yahweh, get them caring for each other. And in this, the text says that they are able to withstand Assyria. And this isn't just some folktale. 
Jake, can we get the inscription? So the, we've talked about this pronunciation all morning. I know Hebrew, I don't know Akkadian. Uh, the prism of Sennacherib, we're gonna call it that, right, right Jeremiah? We're going with that. It says that as for Hezekiah the Judahite who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his stronghold cities, and it starts talking about how uh, the, the king, the, the ruler of Assyria was able to just to take all the surrounding towns, even some of the, the border cities of Judah, but could not take Jerusalem. And this is, this is the, uh, the highlight of the Hezekiah story, that Jerusalem does not fall at that time. And right in the midst of all this, as they're hunkered down in the little bit of Judah they've got left, you've got Micah on the scene going, you can still screw this up. You can still make a mistake big enough that you will be taken out. There, there will be somebody else. You are terrible people when you worship other gods and when you trample on each other. Israel begins to get a little, Judah, not Israel, Judah gets a little bit, John, if I just say Israel, correct me, okay? Judah gets a little bit antsy, and, and then Micah speaks these words from chapter 6. He brings what is very normal in the Old Testament. He brings a, uh, a divine lawsuit from Yahweh's mouth. Listen, Israel, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you through the wilderness. And you worship these other gods? And it sits for a pause. And then the, uh, the, the kind of speaker for Israel says, so what should we do? Our grain, our oil, our, our own lives, what should we give to this God to please him and to, to stop the future possibilities of this? And the prophet says, you know. God doesn't want that. God wants you to do mishpat, so this is the word that we translate as justice, to do justice. Uh, the, the chamishpatim are the, uh, the laws we get in the Torah. These laws that are supposed to orient people to loving God and worshiping him rightly, to glorifying God in all they do, and to caring for other people. That is the whole purpose of the chamishpatim, of the laws. And so Micah says, you need to do these. These things teach you how to love God how to care for each other. And you need to uh, practice loving tenderly or something like that. To, uh, to do chesed. Chesed is this word that we, we have a, in our bones feel about it, what it means, but it's really hard to translate because uh, it doesn't sound really cool in a coffee cup to say uh, we're going to practice covenant faithfulness. But that's what this word means. Hesed is that you are going to be faithful to the one with whom you have made covenant. Hesed is the, uh, one of the primary descriptors of Yahweh, and it's supposed to be one of the primary descriptors of, of now Judah, uh, that they would remain covenantly faithful. This means uh, if it's not raining and you need rain, you don't turn to Baal. If your family is not having babies, you don't grab an astral pole and put it in your window. If things are really bad, you don't turn to Marduk and hope that you win a war. You remain in Hesed, covenantly faithful with your God. And then Micah gives us a third thing. You need to walk humbly, humbly. 
See, this, uh, this word is, uh, see, I have to write it down because it's how infrequently it occurs. The word is sana. It occurs one time in the Hebrew Bible and one time after the Hebrew Bible, before the time of Jesus, in the book called the Ecclesiasticus. Uh, it gets picked up and then carried on into Greek and Latin with this idea of wisdom and humility together. So this is why people struggle uh, with it just being humility. Uh, because it, it is also an invitation to this wise humility. You can be humble and be foolish, right? You can be humble and be trampled upon. You can be humble and make tons of mistakes. But this word uh, seems to just tweak just a little differently to, to a, a humility that is rooted in, in wisdom. And the Hebrew scriptures are full of wisdom. We get a whole uh, kind of like bonus section of the Old Testament full of, uh, of people trying to explain what it means to, uh, to walk uh, wisely humble. We get to the book of Lamentations, which tells us what it looks like to finally admit when things are broken. We get the book of Proverbs that tells us what things can look like when things are wonderful. We get the book of Song of Solomon, which gives us this very erotic story that tries to tell us what it looks like to be in love with God. We get the book of Job, who says this is what things just look like when it's unexplainably terrible. When you know you've done the right thing and it's still falling apart. And then we get the book of Ecclesiastes. It's my favorite. There's a season for everything. Some days it's good, some days it's bad. Sometimes things make sense, sometimes they don't. So I guess at the end of the day, all you can do is follow the mishpatim. This is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. You can follow the law. This is Micah's uh, promise to Israel. This is what Yahweh desires of you. Do this and things will be fine. We know from the rest of the story that they don't do these things. There's uh, not many more good kings. There is Josiah, who's a pretty awesome king. There's a reason we named our son Josiah. Uh, but mainly, the rest of the kings are terrible. Israel falls, or Judah, you almost, you almost got me. Judah falls to Babylon, and then we flip to the intertestamental period. And Jesus comes on the scene as Rome is the new empire having surpl sur uh, supplanted Greece. Jesus is in a new Israel, an Israel that is now a vassal state of Rome, a, a, a nation who is trying their best to bring about the promises that the prophets declared, a nation that is longing to be delivered. And Jesus comes on the scene, and he, at every turn, does this stuff Micah talks about. He doesn't bring the sword and go kill the man. He comes in and says, I'm here to, uh, to set the prisoner free, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to give uh, care to the marginalized. When they try to trap him, he says, uh, they ask him about the law and which ones, and he says, this, this is what it looks like, is to love your God and love your neighbor. And, uh, and Jesus doesn't let them off with just that, though. He, he reduces it to that for this discussion with the leaders, but when he preaches, he doesn't preach a saccharine, sweet, just love Jesus kind of sermon. He goes up on a mountain that is full of people coming to listen to him talk, and he says, you've heard it say, don't murder. I say, don't be angry. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust in your heart. He takes the mishpatim and says, let's actually talk about your heart, because your behaviors will follow your heart. If your heart is pointed to God, and this is where uh, this first section climaxes in, be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is not a um, a legalistic invitation to perfect behaviors. Instead, an invitation to a chesed heart, a heart that is uh, covenantly faithful to God 
through which you can be faithful in your actions because your heart is oriented towards God. And then Jesus is the ultimate wisdom sage who comes in the scene and, and uh, reframes every question in ways that invite you to consider what it means to be humble in the face of the powerful. The same thing gets picked up in John's Revelation. At the end of our Bible, we get seven letters to seven churches, and each one of them uh, has a thing going on. A couple of them are good, a couple of them are terrible, and a couple of them are lukewarm. But the critiques are largely two things. You have forgotten your first love, or you have trampled each other. Does this seem familiar? And so Jesus says, here's what you've got to do. You've got to, because Jesus is the one revealing this through the, through the messengers, right? That We get this from Revelation. Jesus is revealing uh, to this through the messengers that, that uh, these churches need to love God, and in so their behavior be such that they care for one another. And in this, they are called the conquerors. And when we finally get to the end of the story, the ones who uh, enter into New Jerusalem and heaven comes down to earth, these are the ones who have conquered. Micah faced Assyria. Jesus faced Rome. Who do we face? What is standing at our door uh, as a threat and offering us other gods? Where are the things that would uh, ask us to make them idols? Where are the places we offer up allegiance that we shouldn't? Where are the places that our hearts are so pulled away that we have uh, lost hesed? We have broken out of covenant faithfulness with the God who took on flesh and died for us. Where has the the things outside of us begin to ask us to change our very heart's orientation and to do things uh, that are contrary to the mishpatim. And the foolishness of, uh, of preaching, Paul says, is foolishness to the world. What are those things that are bearing down on us that stop us from walking humbly and wisely? I think the answer might be uh, similar for all of us, but have great differences. The Christian life would be easy if we were in a bubble and we just all just, it was all perfect and we just, you know, we're floating on uh, harps. Shelby, that harp playing? Harp, Parker wants to learn to play harp and, uh, and, and I get these angelic feelings every time, right? Wouldn't it be easier if we just lived in harp land? If Be Thou My Vision was just the song of our day and nothing was pressing in and there were no idols pressing at the door and there was no empire demanding our allegiance, but there's not. It's not enough for us to come on Sunday morning and show up and, uh, and hear a, a sermon and receive some grace. It's, it's then that we have to go out in the strength of our spirit to give ourselves for others, as our liturgy says. To push aside the things that would, uh, would tear us down. And to love God and to care for others. Amen? Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, would you help us be a people who love you and love our neighbors? A people who uh, see the heart of your law and our actions flow forth from our relationship with you. Would you pour out your spirit upon us that we might, that we might be faithful to you, that we might hold covenant, 
Would you pour out your spirit upon us that our, uh, our lives and actions might match our heart? And would you pour out your spirit upon us that we might know what it is to walk humbly and wisely? Lord, may this grace of yours sustain us in the days ahead as we go forth into a world that uh, desires nothing more than our allegiance. And yet it's filled with people and things you love. Strengthen us now that we might go forth in your spirit to give ourselves for others. Amen and amen.